0: Text for this morning's sermon comes from the same passage we've read from earlier, Matthew 25, verse 14 to 30. And after the proclamation of God's word, then we will sing in response from Psalm 37, sentences 1, 2, and 15. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, in the verses preceding our text, In the first parable in Matthew 25, the parable of the wise and foolish virgins, the lesson taught to us there is that as we wait for the second coming of Jesus Christ, we must be prepared. Prepared by watching while we wait. But there's more to this waiting period than just that. For Christ immediately thereafter told his listeners another parable to teach them that while we are to be watching while we wait, we must also be working while we wait. Therefore, I proclaim God's word to you this morning from our text under this theme. We are to work faithfully with what the Master has entrusted to us. We'll consider first what He has given to us, and secondly, what we are to give to Him. First, what He has given to us. Well, the parable in our text is rather straightforward, it involves a master and Three servants, he gives to each of those servants a number of talents, goes away for some time before he returns and seeks an accounting from each of them. That's the parable in a nutshell. It's a parable that we're all probably familiar with. Maybe we've heard it many times. And it seems simple enough to understand and apply to our lives. But sometimes when we become familiar with something, we might be in danger of losing an appreciation for it. Or for some aspects of it. Glossing over the the intricacies of this parable. Leading us to flatten out its meaning and minimize the power of the point, if not, misunderstand the point that our Lord Jesus is making here. And so at the outset of this sermon, it's necessary to give a few preliminary clarifying remarks so that we have a correct understanding of this parable. In the first place, while most of our English translations use the word servants, the word actually means slaves now we all can understand why the translators made this choice because of the negative connotations surrounding slavery in our day and age but we must be careful not to have our minds to have in our minds the the idea of racially defined slavery or chattel slavery as it was practiced in early America, involving captivity, oppression, buying and selling into slavery. It's important then to understand that slavery worked differently in the time in which Jesus told this parable. At that time, if the economy were to tank and you lost all, of, all that you had spent your life working for, you had no choice but to sell yourself into slavery. Even at times, slavery was entered into voluntarily as the best solution available. And slavery was not always the, the lowest, the most menial jobs either, Some slaves were well-trained and well-educated, and so they were given high positions as accountants or as teachers, positions of honor and trust. So the entire structure of slavery was different from what it was in North American history. And then the second important remark we must make at the outset is that we must rightly understand what kind of talents Christ was referring to here. The word used in the original is talenton, and so it shows up as talents in our English Bibles. But the word talent is not a talent as as we often think of it as having or speaking of a spirit special ability, such as playing the violin or piano or having mathematical or organizational skills or having a gift with words or possessing superior sporting prowess or anything like that. A talent in this case was a unit of weight for measuring money. One talent was worth about 20 years labor for a blue-collar worker. That's something that's somewhere between in the ballpark of, a, of about a million dollars each talent. Quite a lot of money. Definitely not chicken feed that we're talking about. So what the master was distributing were vast amounts of money and requiring his managers that they invest them. Five million to one, two million to another, one million to another. It was all distributed, the text says in verse 15, according to their ability. That tells us that he was a wise master for he had evaluated each of these slaves and their abilities, seeing what they could handle and estimating what they had the potential to do. Now what even the the young boys and girls among us can discover from this parable is that there is an unequal or uneven distribution by the master. Children are good at spotting things like that, aren't they? Hey, he got a bigger cookie than me. She got more than me. But the master here gives in different measure. He doesn't give to all the same. But on top of that, it is important to notice that what he distributes between them are actually his. Over and over again in this parable, we are told that what was entrusted to these slaves was his. Verse 14, the words, his property. Verse 25, the third servant says, I hid your talent. Verse 27, the master says, you ought to have invested my money so that I should have received what was my own with interest. Well, we see then that he is the owner and and the three slaves are his stewards, responsible to him for how they manage what they have been given. So, applying this to ourselves, brothers and sisters, we are taught here that whatever we have is God's, remains God's and is to be given back to God. So we might put our names on our bank accounts and on our checkbooks, on each individual check and, and on our homes and on our cars and, and even our children, whatever it may be, but this parable tells us that it is not ours First and foremost, it is God's. All that we have is His. When we look at our possessions and finances, we must see God's name written all over it. Not mine, but His. Now, a talent was a term of currency, as I've said. So when we look at this parable Exclus- we can look at it exclusively in terms of how we work with our money. The sermon could simply be about how we spend our money, how we save our money, how we give of our money. Money definitely speaks and speaks loudly, says a lot about what we believe about God. God. I dare say that if you want to know what someone truly believes, don't read the confessions. Don't search people's bookshelves. Don't troll their posts on social media. Don't inspect their tattoo, if they have one, or or the nice inscriptions they have on their walls of their home. Just look at their bank account, their pocketbook, their purse, their piggy bank. One's use of money shows what they believe about God. And what one believes about God shows itself in the use of their money. But the principle of this parable really extends further beyond money. And, uh, and applies to everything that we have in life. It might be our skills, our abilities, our talents in that sense. Whatever skill or talent we have is God-given, and it is to be used for Him. You could apply this to the openings and the opportunities that God gives us in, in life to use our skills and resources. Some people have many opportunities. Some have very few. Some have many doors open to them. For others, it may just be one And yet, each door that opens is a talent, a gift of God. And we could apply this also to our children. Every child given to us is a gift from God and God's investment in in the set of parents entrusted to that child and the parents are in turn to invest in them so that they can, uh, there can be a return that that child uh, will bring a return to God with added interest, added value, so to speak. Especially the value of saving knowledge and faith in Jesus Christ. And we could apply this also to the gospel itself. Something that we will come back to later on Every sermon, every good book, every set of godly parents and grandparents and the prayers that they've prayed for us, all of these things are talents, gifts of God to us. And when we add it all up, we see that there is so much generosity. There's so much overflowing liberality in what God has given to us. But God does not give equally in His providence. God is no communist. This shows in His sovereignty, and we are to respect His investments and not fall into ways of jealous thinking as if I deserve what he or she has. That's nothing other than than shaking our fist at God, thinking that he got his distribution wrong. No, God is sovereign. Everything comes to us by sovereign grace and sovereign wisdom. He may not have given you five talents because it may not be safe for you to have five talents because of the dangers of temptation or pride or self-sufficiency. So we need to accept the unevenness and the inequality in God's provision. We need to recognize that anything I have is grace, pure grace, more than I deserve. And anything and everything I have is God's because it is God-given. So this parable shows us that God, our God, is a God who is into making investments. He's an investor. He invests in us. He he invests uh, unevenly among us, and yet he invests in every one of us and trusting something to each of us. But that is not all that this parable is teaching us. For the most important point of the parable is that he invests seeking a return. And that brings us to our second point seeing what we are to give to him. Well, as the parable unfolds, after the master has handed out the talents respectively, he leaves quite suddenly. There's no specific instructions that he gives before he goes away on a journey. He leaves behind no job description. Nor does he even give a time frame for how long he will be away. He simply invests his money and then leaves his managers to work it out themselves. And that is also how it is with us, isn't it? God has not given us specific instructions in his word regarding what you and I should do, for example, today and tomorrow and this week and this year, how we should spend our time, how we should spend our money and so on. But with his word in hand, we have God's will for us to know and to follow And so we are called to search the Scriptures for the principles that He wants us to live by. We see His principles shown in the commandments, such as the Ten Commandments we heard this morning. The the examples God's Word gives us, the warnings God's Word gives us. He wants us to live by these, to put them together, to work out what the Master would have us do specifically and personally. So we don't need to wander around aimlessly, wondering what we should be busy with. We have received wisdom, we have received instruction and direction in God's word. But as the parable goes, the master leaves for an unknown, undisclosed length of time. What our text describes in verse 19 as a long time. And while he is away, what do his slaves do with what was entrusted to them? Well, we discover that the first one who was entrusted with five talents gets busy. The text says in verse 16, at once, immediately, he engages himself in significant and hard labor. He didn't wait to get started. The same thing with the $2 million manager. They got busy without hesitation. They didn't wait and say, well, I don't know how long my master's going to be gone. I'm going to wait for a year and then I'll start working. No, they didn't do that. Rather, they began working and working hard and doing what they believed the master desired. But while they began working immediately, verse 18 tells us that the one who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. While the others are working, trading, bargaining, trying to make money for the master, what's he doing? The third slave? It's nothing as far as we know. He's, is he just sitting there? Is he watching TV? Is he going fishing? Is he going golfing? We don't know. But What we do know is that he only wanted to do the bare minimum. Enough to get by without receiving criticism. But after his long hiatus, the master came back to look for a return on his investments. And he first seeks an account from the one who has given five talents. And this slave is able to give a good report back to him that he had doubled his money. And the master is pleased with him and says, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And it's the same thing with The one who was given two talents, he doubled them and he received the same commendation from the master. And there's something significant about that fact that these two slaves receive the same commendation. For it shows that the master is not concerned with how much they managed, but how they managed, the way they managed. They were given a stewardship and they proved faithful with it. But the parable is all leading up to the third slave who was given the one talent. He's the one we read about last. He's the focus of the most verses. And so what do we see that he does? Well, he digs up that one talent that he had buried which he was given, and he hands it back to the master. And he explains in verse 24 and 25, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow, and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here, you have what is yours. You notice what he does. He pins all the blame on the master. Because you're harsh, you're stern, you're hard, and I was afraid, so that's why I did what I did. In other words, he launches the charge against the master that that the master is basically exploitative, cruel, harsh, unbearable. This master makes his slaves work, and they get nothing from it, and the master gets all the gain. Well, do we think this slave has a point? We might think so if we view this parable in light of trade union rules. In our world today, you can leave, you can abandon that job, you can withdraw your labor and and move to a new job, and, or form a trade union. But that's where it's important to remember that this is a slave-master relationship. The slave owes everything to his master. That's the nature of the relationship. If the slave walks off the job and says, I quit, he could be killed, he could certainly be beaten. The idea here is that of what we read of elsewhere in the scriptures. You are not your own, but we're bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God with your body. We are not our own, but belong to Christ as we confess in Lord's Day 1 of the Heidelberg Catechism. The only alternative of being a slave to Christ is not freedom... But it is to be a slave to sin. So we are not free to do whatever we want or desire. We are bound to do everything for our master. And that explains why the master responds the way he does. The master says, as it were, with with a sarcastic tone, Oh, you knew I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scattered no seed? This is not an admission, but it's as if he's saying, okay, let me take you at your own word that I'm hard, that I'm exploitative. If you really thought that I was harsh, so harsh, then you would have done something. You would have, you would have shown up with nothing. You would have shown up with something rather than show up empty-handed. So this is all just a weak And flimsy excuse. The servant here is is basically being unmasked here. And there's, there's no indication whatsoever that the master conducted himself with anything less than the highest integrity. Displaying the utmost generosity. Not only did he supply his slaves handsomely and richly to begin with. But he also rewards them generously. And in fact says to the two faithful slaves, enter into the joy of your master. He invites them to join with him and share in the joy and celebration for them and and for their work. Shows us that he's no harsh master at all. And so the master sees right through this thin excuse and he says to this servant in verse 26 you wicked and slothful servant those two descriptors get us right to the heart of the problem on the one hand he is slothful This is is the only time that this word appears in Matthew's gospel and there's only one other time that this word is found in, in the whole New Testament in Romans 12 verse 11 where Paul writes, do not be slothful in zeal. The idea behind it includes lazy or idle and that's the problem here. This man tried to blame the master for his laziness, but it wasn't about the master. This man was unwilling to carry out his calling. Instead, he did nothing. There was no activity, no obedience on his part before the master. Instead, he allowed himself to be diverted from the master's business. But he was not only called slothful, he's also described as wicked. And this word has the idea of worthless, which is the word that, that shows up in verse 30. But there is more to it. For the master is identifying wickedness not by commission, by, that is, committing something wrong. Say, by abusing what the master had entrusted to him, throwing it to the wind or or gambling it all away or something like that. But there is a wickedness by omission, which is equally disobedient, not doing what one was supposed to do. So what is the parable's point? We can put it this way. Our task while the master is away, is to improve the master's assets, not our own. That's what the parable is about. Here, we must remember that this parable, as well as the others that are, that are located well, here around it, surrounding it, in this gospel, are, are leading us to the cross. And to the resurrection, the evidence that Jesus Christ was the only truly faithful servant. The following chapter, Matthew 26, begins the passion narrative. All of Matthew's gospel is moving toward the death and resurrection. And, that, and what that tells us is that everything that we have is secured by Christ. He died for sinners, the just for the unjust, to bring us to God. And so, even the assets that have been entrusted to us have been secured by another, bought by the blood of Christ. Our duty, then, is to improve on those assets, to return those assets with a return, with interest. That includes our task of sharing the gospel with others around us, in our neighborhoods. So, so that we see that outreach is not an option, but an obligation. It also includes building up the body of Christ. That means Praying for one another, praying with one another, encouraging one another in the faith, teaching the word of God to one another in whatever context God gives us. Because we want to hear in the end, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. But if we are absorbed with ourselves, We will not want to serve the master. We'll want to serve ourselves. And we'll resent the tasks and the callings that God sets before us in our homes, in the church, and in society. But true slaves of Christ accept and even enjoy their responsibility to work for the master. We want to serve this master. And so this parable is leading us all to ask, where is my heart? Is this my greatest aim? Do I have the desire to improve the master's assets? To see the master's assets given to me multiplied and and profit, making a profit for him and for his glory. And so our waiting until the second coming of Christ is not passive. It's not as though all that's important is that we're not found in some compromising place or position keeping our nose out of trouble when Christ returns. No, instead we pour our energy into eager, joyful activity to improve the master's assets Now what does that mean for you practically? Well certainly we can come back to the fact that every dollar we make has been given to us and is to be turned around for our master. Same too with all of our opportunities and skills and abilities and our gifts. And the same goes for all of the grace God has invested in you making you a member of this church for however long letting you hear however many sermons every sermon is is like a dollar no it's it's like a talent isn't it every sermon is worth a million dollars isn't it what's the price of a sermon it's infinite why Because of its potential to bring forth saving fruit and sanctifying fruit in our lives. What an investment every sermon is. It demands a return. It demands interest. It demands improvement. Same goes for every catechism lesson learned. Same goes for every time of family devotions whether that's around the breakfast or dinner table or elsewhere in our homes, every prayer that was prayed for us, every Sunday, every day of rest and worship, having a day to spend reading God's word, studying it and discussing it together and having fellowship with one another. The question is, how do we make use of these things, these gifts that God has given us? Are you a good manager? Or do you just bury it all in the ground for safekeeping and neglect it? Well, you see, I trust, brothers and sisters, to make this very personal, that what is in your gospel account is full and overflowing Especially if you've been a member of the church your whole life. So I ask, where is your return? Are you trading? Are you busy? Or are you slothful, inactive, passive? God will call us to account for all of his investments in our lives. And so let's be busy with what he wants us to be busy with. Let's be trading. Let's be faithful and diligent, looking forward to his return when every last faithful servant will enter into our master's joy forever. Amen.